This is Coda Radio, episode 121 for September 29th, 2014. everyone, and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host, established on the East Coast, Mr. Michael Dominic. Whoop! Hey, hey there, Mr. Ooh. Dominic. It's a DOS keyboard. <laughs> With the grand entrance, too. You realize now, technically, you just evolu- you just elevated the keyboard above yourself in hosting status because you introduced the keyboard before you introduced yourself. The keyboard is You got amazing. higher billing, dude. You got higher billing. <laughs> the keyboard is the, the only truth. That's true. Uh, and I also know that you probably missed it because unless Instagram was lying to me, you did a little bit of traveling while we were uh, apart. I did. I did. I was in Florida. And how was that? It was very nice. I couldn't, you know, from the Instagram, uh, what, I, what phone are you taking pictures with, man? I mean, these are some of the worst cell phone pictures I've seen. The, the Nexus 5. I was a little surprised to see how poor the pictures were. <laughs> I mean, it was fun, you know, but I was like. <laughs> yeah, I was like, huh. Like, I love the Nexus 5, but this is kind of crap. Yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, the iPhones never looked better. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, hold on. We, geez, don't label us that already before we even get that. I, I got to tell you, I, I had one of those weeks where I'm every now and then I'm starting to feel like this real urge to just disconnect from technology for a while. Because like just little things are failing, like um, the Raid Array on the Wirecast machine failed last week. And thankfully, we didn't miss any shows because of it. We caught it, and we had a backup. But it, you know, like that was one thing. And then uh, I've had something else break in the studio that just didn't plan for that to happen. And there's just like little things here and there are just failing in technology in the last couple of weeks for me. And I've just, I had it. I had it. And then I, I, I installed some sort of step tracker program on my phone, and it was draining my battery. That was awful. I thought my phone's battery was dead, but I figured that out. And it's just, Mr. Dominic, I'm done with it. Do you ever get to that point where you're just done with technology? Yes, it's called my uh, live in the woods like a heathen days. Just yeah. Go. Makes it's great. Makes me want to grab a bottle of whiskey. Drives me crazy. Well, uh, we got some stuff to get into in this week's episode. Not just my woes with technology, which I somehow will power through. Somehow. Uh, and, you know. Actually, I, I do have my touchstones that I love still, so I, I, I can never truly unplug from you. Like, when I imagine unplugging from technology, like, I kind of did that over the summer. I went to a cabin, and I still brought a tablet and my smartphone, and they had Netflix streaming to the TV. <laughs> so when I unplug, it's it's so it's so lame. Uh, all right, well, uh, let's get to our first bit of feedback. And we had an interesting discussion last week regarding a crowdfunding on Kickstarter as a way to... Uh, fun development and uh you kind of took a, t- a track of like don't use kickstarter to fund development use the use the more traditional vc right. route yep well uh azorlin or azorhin azorsin jeez gosh anyways we've got a great comment saying uh, in response to that so he, and his point was that kickstarter shouldn't exist in f- in favor of traditional investment saying that is the same as saying that non-commercial projects shouldn't be able to crowdfund 
As has been pointed out, these traditional investors are generally in for the money, which means non-commercial projects are inherently uninteresting to them for investment. So in effect, a stance against easier crowdfunding is a stance that is hostile to funding non-commercial projects in general. What do you think of that, Mr. Dominic? No, right? So, So donations existed before Kickstarter. Yeah, but you cannot deny the effectiveness of Kickstarter for raising money around a, a, a project. Right, but there's nothing that stops you from having a Kickstarter-like site for open source only, right? Mm, something sort of like Kickstarter, but something you make yourself? Right, right. <clears throat> yeah. He says that he believes the positive outcomes often validate the concept without the negative outcomes invalidating them. There are even commercial investors who throw venture capital at potentially profitable projects fully expecting to lose some of the investment in projects, shipwrecking it in some way. Uh, he says, if you donate to crowdfunded projects, you should perhaps try to take on a similar mindset that just pro- in it for the profit doesn't mean uh, – he doesn't uh, – see, in it – don't uh, it's long. He goes. It's way too long. But what his point is, I think his his core point was, is that if you do donate, sort of like investing, that if it's it's something you have to be prepared for not to make a return on investment on. And I don't think that people do go into Kickstarter making a return on investment. And I think that was kind of what people misconstrued your point as, is that you were assuming people on Kickstarter are planning to make money off the projects they back. And I think also what they're what what he's right. responding so, so, to. So what I was criticizing is a lot of the. Um particularly the games, right, the commercial projects that, you know, people are getting kickstarted and then not delivering and people are getting really upset. Yeah, I yeah, I think uh, I think your hard stance on is what kind of responding to is he says it's more of a gray area. But either way, I digress. I just wanted to follow up because it was it was sort of uh, a point that we touched on and moved on from, and you, I actually thought you'd be pro Kickstarter because I mean, imagine like for example, somebody wanted a GitHub-like client for Linux that would uh, do nice GitHub type. You know, some somebody was going to make like just 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 as an example, and you weren't sure if you were ever going to make money on Linux, but if you could raise money on something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And you knew that twenty thousand dollars of that revenue was paying for the Linux development time. Doesn't that sort of solve that problem for you? Can you can now make the Linux port, and you know you will make that money because you've it's been prepaid for ahead of time. Uh, sure, but the other problem is, what if I don't make the Linux port, or maybe I'm not me, and maybe I just, you know, I'm I'm somebody who can't actually get the Linux port done, right? Yeah, but let's say no. I'm talking about you, though. Well, I, I think if I were to do something on Kickstarter, it'd be pretty likely that I would actually deliver the product at the end, yeah, right? Right, right. So there's a level of, I would hope, trust there. Right. Um, so that's where I think Kickstarter can be can be a good tool uh, if you can if you can somehow trust the person you're backing, uh, where which means then the people with the larger audience have a better chance of winning. Blah blah blah. I hate that line, but that's just kind of where I was going with that. Is it could be a way for a company like yours that's established and people know it. To take a risk that otherwise you would never financially take, um, without 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 all the downside of uh, lost time and investment. Uh, before we move on to the rest of the emails, uh, I just did want to mention the Coda Radio subreddit. This would be a great spot if you had some suggestions for our hoopla section of the show where we discuss what's going on in the development world for the week. 
and that usually just one or two topics that are of particular interest to discuss, even though there could be hundreds of things going on. And we can get an idea of the types of topics you'd like to see. So if you think, oh, they talk about iOS too much, or oh, they talk about Linux too much, or Python, or whatever it is you think we talk too much about, well, you can help shift that narrative in any direction you like by going to the subreddit and voting the topics up and down or submitting stories. That's coderadio.reddit.com. And also feedback is welcome there as well. It's a great spot. And the community has a chance to chime in. So Zach wrote in, uh, just as one more follow-up from last week, and then we're getting all our new stuff. Zach writes in with uh, a wrist pain uh, uh, follow-up. A recent episode, you mentioned RSI in relation to keyboard mappings st- uh, and types. I have a wrist pain for years now, which I attribute to competitive gaming and maybe some kung fu when I was a teenager. I put up with, uh, I put up with moderate, and then I usually would just quit gaming. However, what has been a game-changer for me is the vertical mouse. It's the most ergonomic equipment, but it's pricey, and I found it for $25 on Amazon. He says, normally, it's a lot, lot more. It's absolutely amazing. I'm pulling it up right now. Oh, okay. Wow, that is really neat. So it's uh, it's a mouse that's kind of almost on its side, in a sense. And you, here's a picture of the guy with a hand grip. Now, that's fascinating. Uh, and he says it makes a huge difference. It was very easy to adjust to. Uh, unlike my Kinesis Advantage keyboard, and it's provided instant wrist relief. And it's 23 bones US on Amazon with a little micro USB receiver for wireless. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you guys are interested in that. Very interesting, Zach. Thank you for the follow-up. Okay, now we got an now Mike Oliver has a question that I think I'm going to have to defer to you. He says, "Hi guys, I have sort of a luxury problem, but I desperately need a solution for it. I wrote a small application using PHP and SQLite, and I host it on my own server. Fortunately, I've had success with this application, and so now my client wants to install it on their own equipment in their data center. Since it's PHP and SQLite, I have a problem giving them just full control over my complete software. So my question, do you know of any packaging, encryption, or file system that would enable only the PHP web server to read these files? Or another option would be maybe use some sort of tool that, quote-unquote, optimizes the PHP code in a way that it would be unreadable to them? Thanks for the ideas, Oliver. So uh, I don't know where you want to take this, Mike, but just generally, like, you know, you create something where in the very nature of it they can just open it up and look how you've done it, but then they want to buy it from you. Uh, and you don't want to just hand them the code in this case, what could Oliver do? What would be the right approach, do you think? Have you, have you struggled with anything like this? You know, not really. Um, no, not, nothing major that I can think of. Uh, you know, most of the stuff I've done is pretty native, so it, you know, you can't just do, like, show content and yeah. see an HTML page. Yeah. Rewrite it in Java? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, I've heard of people, you know, using like obfuscation tools to make their code weird, and I'm I'm not really sure. Certainly, I could see how there might be a risk of somebody like opening the packages, getting the code, and making a pirated bundle of it. Um, I guess what I what I'm struggling to understand is what the problem is because if you, I think the problem is he's afraid of piracy. Well, yeah, so that, you 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 have them sign a licensing agreement, and right. you charge them for support. And if they, if I guess I go back to this though, if they had the capability of doing this, why would they be buying your program? So what good does it do them if they, if they could, if if they, if they had the ability to open this up and read it and know what the hell it does, they would have just done it. Well, I think he's worried about like the window rogue Windows IT guy, right, who takes the enterprise disk and puts it on Pirate Bay after leaving his job. Yeah, I, and then that's just out there. 
I think that's pretty impractical for probably what uh, – unless it's something that people know of, it's something that's sought after, it's something that has maybe an established name. It doesn't really happen though. Like, you know, I, I've come across so many custom crappy pieces of code that some contractor has written for some client of mine, and I couldn't give two flying craps what it does. Hey, man, what hey it man. Is. whoa, 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 hey, man. I mean, it's usually just <laughs> junk stuff that does some task-specific thing. I would never want to pirate it, and nobody would ever want to download it. So it, it's really and, – and, and because they're a business, you have a clear legal recourse to take if they ever did something with it. It's really kind of a non-issue, and I think it's almost a form of developer narcissism that he's even worried about it. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't not make the sale because of this. Um, I mean, who's your customer, right? If your cust- you really think your customer is going to, like, whip open the source code, copy and paste it to Pastebin or whatever. I know that's silly, but... I would be more legitimately concerned about them deciding to just maintain it themselves and not need you. That's what I would be more worried about. Not them pirating it or... Or, or distribute it around, but I'd be worried about them deciding, well, we've got a guy or girl that knows PHP, you know, one of those things where they got some, some person they can throw the job to, which probably then maybe that person should have just wrote, wrote the software in the first, t- first place. Either, anyway, something like that. And then they could take it, maintain it, F, do bug fixes, add features, and things like that. And, of course, they'll do a horrible job, as always happens. Uh, that's more, I think, the more realistic threat. And that's where you say, okay, well, here's the license agreement, only I'm supposed to make changes to this, and if you want changes, this is my contracting rate, and I charge hourly or however you want to decide to charge it, or you build it into the price for a year or whatever you decide to do, and you just build it in a little bit. That's the only thing you can do. I mean, so you're saying the best business model is support, right? I, no, no, no. Like, I'll, I'll be brutal. I think I agree with Chris. I I don't think it's support. I don't think, I think this is a real fear. Unless for... you can, yeah. I mean, it's it's not just support. I think it, it sounds demeaning when you say just support. I think it's it's more like feature enhancements. Uh, you know, m- migrating it as they upgrade their systems and and PHP things change. And it's more it's more like it's not just support. It's it's a it's going to be a living thing that they're going to need adapted to their environment over time as their business changes. And that's that's where you make your money. And, and, and if it's something – if it's honestly something so simple that they could just go replicate and pirate off and all that kind of stuff, you were probably – somebody else was just going to write it anyways. Right. I mean the thing is if, if your – the software you're building for them doesn't require you know, a significant amount of domain knowledge of their business, then it's a commodity and you're probably yes. in trouble anyway. Right. Yeah, and if it wasn't your specific expertise that got that product to where it's at, if it's some sort of expertise they have in-house, then they really don't need you that much anyways. Yeah. Well, that was sad. Well, no, it's just how it's just how that no, it's actually better. Because see, he's thinking about, well, let me sell this thing, this one-time thing, and I'll make X amount of dollars off it and then I'm done. But really what he needs to think more about is let me sell them something that has this accounted for built into the price and maybe the way I account for that is say, well, I'm also going to include a year of maintenance and support. And you hope that you come out on the top of that arrangement and that that when you come out on top, that buffer pays for the risk you're taking by handing them over the code you know i have heard of some companies putting in like tags and tracers into their software to see if something gets you know Ooh, like little tiles like little yeah like call homes or what little call homes things like that we don't it's tell me more stuff because (laughs) you know the business i'm in 
you're buying the service, so assuming you pay the bill and don't do anything obnoxious, yeah. um, you get the source code. So there, there's no need for that kind of crazy... I don't know. Yeah, the par- it's, it's... I, I've heard of it. Now, I don't know how legally... Like, I've also heard of web developers shutting down people's website for non-payment. And I've yes, been told oh, yeah, yeah. that that's not necessarily smart in terms of legal... Um, I don't believe it is, no. Yeah. 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 It, you know, it's really tough, right? Because I think the thing he's ultimately worried about is either non-payment or getting robbed. And unfortunately, in a lot of these cases, the vendor loses just because, you know, once they have the code, possession's nine-tenths of the law, right? Yeah, and they could even make the argument that what they would – the way they – if they really wanted to, they would just find a way to claim that you've been negligent in in their needs and this is an important software right. for their business function. And so therefore, it's their responsibility to take care of the problem. And they would just fight you on that. So if – there's, there's and, nothing and to do there. I don't know what um, – you know, I don't know what dollar value you're talking about. But unless you were talking about tens of thousands – the you certainly have a license agreement, but the legal costs of enforcing that agreement versus you know any kind of damages you could get are and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't take this on principle to just a little bit of experience are not going to be worth it in almost any case. Isn't that the sad truth? We actually right, have a law encoding email uh, uh, coming up. Well, hello there. Hi. Go. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. I got a little music going playing over here. All right. So uh, we can get to, uh, I think it's Micah. Micah's email next. Um, Good luck, Oliver. Let us know how it goes. We're just uh, giving you the tough love. Before we get to uh, Micah's email, which is an interesting question, uh, I want to mention our friends over at Linux Academy. And we talk a lot about the LAMP stacked, and we talk a lot about PHP and SQLite. Linux Academy's got courses on all of this stuff. Let me tell you about Linux Academy because it's a great way for you to just move your skill set forward at your own pace and really challenge yourself too. And I've also found it's a great resource to fill in some gaps for me. And the best part is they have team accounts. So if you have a group of folks you're working with, you as a group can work together. They have step-by-step video courses with downloadable comprehensive study guides. You can pick from seven plus Linux distributions and then the content, the study guides, automatically adjust to match the distribution you chose, which is so super cool. And they've just rolled out a bunch of really new features. I think I've mentioned recently the learning plans, which is amazing. You just tell Linux Academy, this is how much time I have for this. It'll automatically generate and adjust courseware to match that, and it can help remind you of quizzes and tests and things like that. I think that's really neat. I also think you should check out some of the CentOS stuff. If you've been looking at CentOS recently and you want to really come at it with a firm understanding, they've got some great new courses on OpenStack and CentOS. I think that's probably worth your time. Amazon AWS services as well. Before you deploy something you have to support on AWS, it'd probably be worth your time to take some of these courses. And what I love about these these labs is these are scenario-based labs. So you go through there and you set up the app and it uses S3 for the storage. And you can use EC2 for the front end and the Amazon DNS services and the simple mail services and all of that. It ties it all together so that way you have a comprehensive understanding of how the dashboard works, how these services work together. And the best part is, like all of Linux Academy's courses, not just AWS, but including AWS, they'll automatically spin up a virtual server for you on the back end. So A, you don't have to worry about signing up for an AWS account and then paying for that and funding that while you do your experimentation. But B, it does it just at the right time and they do it integrated with their courseware. Isn't that neat? Each courseware comes, each course, each one of them, when they need a lab, boom, comes with its own server. Pow! 
How neat is that? That's just one example of many of the cool things they do over at Linux Academy, created by a bunch of Linux enthusiasts and educators that came together and said, there's so much here we can go at, so much we can deliver our own brand on, and they've really done an amazing job. The dashboard's incredible. If you've got a little bit of time or a lot of bit of time, it'll keep you going, and they're rolling out new features in labs all the time. It's worth it. Go. Here's what you do. I, I should have mentioned this earlier because this is how you get started. You go to linuxacademy.com slash coders. linuxacademy.com slash coders. That's going to take 20% off your subscription to Linux Academy. And they're adding new stuff all the time. They have a whole bunch of more courses they're rolling out through the rest of the year. Live stream events where you can ask the educators directly. linuxacademy.com slash coders. Go check them out. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio Program. Mr. Dominic, okay, so Micah writes in about law and coding. Get ready for this one. Buckle up. He says, hey, guys, first time writing and thanks for the show. I really enjoyed it and found it informative. I have two questions for you, and I'm hoping you might be willing to read them on the air. I'm also interested to hear what the listeners say. So he's soliciting listener feedback, too. Question number one. I'm not really a programmer or a developer. I'm a law student. My ambition is to eventually help small software startups get off the ground running smoothly so they can focus on what they do. Make kick-ass software or hardware or both. With, uh, so with that said, I'm curious as to what you perceive to be the biggest barriers to communication between developers and their legal support, be it in-house counsel or just maybe a firm they use. Does legal generally not know the tech well enough? Is there ever a culture divide? Is one side not communicative to another? Or do you see this as not an issue at all, which would surprise me? Uh, and uh, he also says, uh, not only would it surprise him, but the more, majority of our broadcasts discuss issues which are, if not legal-related, at least in the vicinity of it. So maybe this could be a, speci- a specialty bias, he says. So what do you think, Mike? Is, do you see issues when interacting with legal? Is this something that is you've ever been like when you're working on your business, been like, God, I really wish there was somebody out there that knew my business better? Yeah, so this is actually something I've experienced myself. Um, the lawyers I've used and talked to, many of them are used to, if they do tech at all, very large tech enterprises, right? So where oh, contracts yeah. and deals start at six figures. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, no, I was just letting you go. I can hear you. Oh, okay. Um, so one of the things like I get from my attorney all the time is like we'll occasionally have customers who – you know, we used to do these lower market apps for people with ideas, and they often disappear mid-contract, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you can sue them, but really, come on. <laughs> Is it worth it? Yeah. And unfortunately, that's kind of the case when attorneys are involved. It, it often isn't worth it. I mean, conversely, of course, it's not worth it for them to sue you if they were upset. Um, so you think you know, it's a cost ins- thing? I think there's a cost thing, and I think there's also, you know... <sighs> One attorney explained it to me very, very well a while ago that the business of developing software for other people is like putting in kitchens, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter if you did a good job. If the lady of the house doesn't like the granite you picked, she's going to be pissed and she's not going to pay you. <laughs> and you know, even if she signed off on the granite before, it's just the way it's going to go. And you have this option where you have a contract and you can get into the pissing match of fighting for payment, or mm. you can just kind of, you know, right. let it go. Yeah. And there have been cases where I've let it go. There have been cases where I've not. I'm less inclined these days to let it go. Um, more so because, I, you know, when dealing with, I see all kinds of cheeseball tactics, right? Like, well, thank you for taking our time, fingertip, but we were going to actually offshore this job, so I'm hoping your billing is commiserate with that. What? 
Yeah, I get all, and that's actually like all kinds of cheese ball tactics from people. And I, we've actually started turning down projects because you can tell on like a first meeting if someone is looking for an angle. Yeah. Um, you get a sense having, of it. Having said that, it's certainly important to have your legal ducks in a row hiring people, right? Um, yeah, I think firing people in particular. <laughs> that's where I would see because I think what what you come down to is fundamentally legal counseling is just too expensive for the small guy to go to in these kinds of you know throwdowns. But where there's a it's it's almost a death by a thousand little needles. Like how should I structure my company? How should I do it when I, when I start to hire employees? What do I need to have when we want to do healthcare? What legal things do we need to consider? It's all of these little tiny things where you constantly wish you had someone to refer to, but it's not worth hundreds of dollars an hour. Uh, for you know, several I'll, I'll hours. Give you, I'll give you a stupid, silly example that happened here last month. I and me and my landlord at the office had a little misunderstanding. No, no conflict. Literally, I didn't understand what he told me. Um, I had to put up some sort of sign for the fire department in Eatontown here that marked the exit from my back office to the whole because there's three rooms here. I put it in the wrong place. Oh, geez. So the inspector comes. It says, well, Busted. if someone was in your office, how would they know how to get out? And then me being me, I looked at him and said, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> like, like, it's really not that big. So that's a you know $25 fine. You got fined? But you get a fine. <laughs> 20, and the guy wrote up the $25. And no I'm thinking, way. I'm like, one, I don't want to pay you $25. Two, the accounting hassle of remembering this $25 check. When you know next January, the CPA asked me, what the hell is this? Twenty five dollars, Eatontown, New Jersey. Right. Um, it's annoying, but it turns out that there are in any little town, any little city, literally thousands of ordinances you have to follow yeah. as a business. Yeah, I've, I've but, had a, I've had a, I've had a few goes because um, the way my the way my city's law is written is that if you have a storefront, you ha- you are you are uh, one type of business. And uh, if you have an internet presence only, you're another type of business. But because we have people that work here, they keep wanting to classify us as a storefront. Oh, same thing in Eatontown, right? So they, you know, when, when we went to open the office here, I was there with the clerk and very nice lady. And she's looking at me. She says, I don't know if I can do this. I said, why? We, we, you know, we have a lease. You know, the lease is obviously tentative to getting the permit. Yeah. Uh, What's the trouble? I said, well, you can call the landlord, you know, the, the, the company that owns the building. I don't know how to classify you. So she turns around her computer screen and says, so I have grocery store, liquor store, barbershop, hairstylist. Mm. It's just – Yeah. I was uh, like, ah, uh, professional services, I guess. So one year we got by by saying – so they said, so are you like an eBay seller then? Yeah. We're like an oh, eBay yeah. seller. Yeah, it's just, and it's not their fault, right? Because they have these rigid codes that they have to yep. put everything in at. Right, but, right. You know, these are all very innocuous examples, but certainly, you know, I know there's lots of crazy laws in lots of cities about stuff. Well, um, or like, you know, uh, so say, you know, you get to a certain point, you're like, okay, well, maybe I need to switch from an LLC to an S Corp. Well, this would be a great time to be able to seek out a lawyer's advice and say, okay, well, how should I structure the company? Do we need to worry about, you know, uh, ownership shares and all these kinds of things that uh i mean uh, what is my best alternative to hire somebody or go visit legal zoom it's not a great it's not a great solution so, um, so my recommendation on that is now i'm not a lawyer not an accountant 
the starting of your company is like one of the most important things you're doing, right. you, especially if you have partners. If you're one guy owning the company, that's easy. Seems like the trouble it's, though is getting to people at that stage because they're not they're not, they're right. probably at that stage you don't know they should be looking for legal counsel. Like, I've seen I actually had a customer a couple of years ago who they started a company as a partnership and they did it on legal zoom or something like that and they totally screwed up the paperwork. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, like like any you know half of the marriages in this country, right? It fell apart. The partnership just broke down. Turns out they never executed the contracts that gave the one guy half the company. So that was a problem. No kidding. Yep. Major, major disruption to their business, and it it really destroyed the business. I mean, their company's still around, but they spent 18 months fighting it out. Oh, what a waste of time and energy and resources and if they they had seen an attorney, seen a CPA about setting up the partnership forms correctly in New Jersey or they're actually from New York. So in New York, it would have been, I don't want to be in this partnership anymore. I own 50 percent. Buy me out. Right. Simple. But when the other partner found out that the guy he now hated, right, they loved each other in the beginning and (laughs) hated each other at the end. Yeah, yeah. Didn't have the legal right to impose anything. He had him escorted from the building, and that was that. Wow, wow. Yep. Well, uh, so Mike has another part of his question. Uh, He says, my other question is about the other side of this, the programming side. I have, I have, um, geez, I have also returned to undergrad to complete a CS program. It's a difficult sentence. He needs to go to English too. <laughs> Just kidding, Mike. It also allows me firsthand. It also allows me a firsthand view of some of the habits programmers pick up on their education, as well as opens up the possibility of certain career paths down the road. It's also a very fun challenge. Um, from the and a, and a change of pace from legal studies, I bet. Unfortunately, it leaves me with little time. I don't anticipate ever becoming especially strong at writing code, but I'd like to eventually at least get decent. I understand that at the end of the day, practicing by working on projects is the best way to improve, but for those who don't have any time at all to de- dedicate to giant projects, are there any exercises or even books you could recommend for improvement, or am I just doomed to be forever kind of meh? At coding. Anyways, thanks again for the show, guys. It's a joy to listen to on my on-the-go uh, listening material. It, it makes running and exercising feel less like pure downtime. That's awesome. Keep up the best. Excellent. Uh, all oh, the, yeah. So all the best was, to you, too, Micah. All the best. Um, I mean, Chris, you know I, I every time someone asks for a book, I recommend Coder to Developer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, I believe it's available on Kindle still. I, I know somebody told me that they couldn't find it, so let me just Google that. Uh, the other thing is Code School, and I think we have a referral code. I actually use yes. Code School. I'm a big fan. I think Code School is linked at the bottom of uh, the Jupiter Broadcasting website still, and we get a little kickback. I would say that's uh, that's you know, unfortunately, Mike, that's your best. I think your course. I think your best course is those kinds of things. And yeah. as somebody who's kind of doing the same for his sysadmin skill set, it's functional. It gets the job done. But the thing is, it's not the same. It is not the same as living that world, thinking about those problems all the time, having an opinion on things as they come up and contemplating the future direction of stuff and, and not just not just following but maybe being at the leading edge. There's a difference there. You will never probably be there if that's not your primary thing, but, dude, that's totally fine. It's, I mean, see, I think this is his underlying question is it, it sort of gets at this anxiety that the Internet has given us all that we have to stay right on the edge of it, and we really got to be experts on all of it. And that's not yeah. – Mike, Mike's job is going to be legal counsel, right? His job isn't going to be to go create the next hit app in the app store. So he doesn't have to worry well, about know, that. I almost think unless you're coding in your free time, something that's probably more beneficial for you to study to your clients is going to be 
what is the actual business process of going from cradle to grave on a software project, whether it's consulting like we do yeah. or whether it's, um, you know, we're a startup, we're the next ice cream delivery with peanuts and snakes service. What about That's a terrible business? Don't anyone try that. What about also like understanding like the legal uh, legalese around app stores and and these you know the, the, trying to maybe understand the the things that developers are getting themselves into when they when they submit their app to an app store or uh, you know when they have somebody that reviews their I mean, app badly and things like that. So here, here's the problem though, right? If so, with the app store. It's kind of you're in or you're out. There's no negotiation there. So having your attorney review the App Store agreement is kind of that's true. I guess it was just thinking yeah. to give them an understanding of what they're agreeing to. But yeah, I guess it doesn't really <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna sign it or you're I mean, gonna be the App Store. It matters, but yeah, you're, it's a kind yeah. of a yes or no. <laughs> not really. There's not a gray yeah. area for you to nickel and dime the uh, the EULA over. I guess that's a fair point. So Micah, go out there, go forward, and let us know, and keep listening to podcasts too. That that also helps. I think that's a good way to go. Um, okay, so we have another email in here that uh, this is speaking of app stores and the legal things that app store owners can make you do. This one comes in from Matt. He's a Google Play developer. I think he wants to get your take on this one, Mike. He says, hey, guys, I've been listening for a long time. I never really felt the need to write in, but that's now changed. Ooh. It says, oh. I'm sure Mike has gotten notice about Google requiring a postal address for all Yo. who would sell their apps or have an in-app purchase in their apps. But I wonder if it has really registered with him what this means for those of us who have an on-the-side develop, uh, who have an on the hold on, have an on-the-side dev account with Google for personal projects in the hopes of maybe making some money or becoming maybe one day truly independent. This article, Why Hyperbolic, makes a really good point, and he links us to an AndroidAuthority.com, and the headline is Google Forcing Developers to Publish Home Address. I was fine with them having my info for verification, but to post it to the world is just ridiculous. I will now be forced to move away from Android as a development platform um, for personal projects, mostly games, if I want to retain my privacy and make money. And that's really sad. Right. I just thought yeah, I'd bring this to your I, attention in hopes you throw your voices into the fray. I, yeah, I don't think this is a great idea. So, so one quick note, right? There's a super easy, super stupid way around this. Uh, just get one of those postal box services that let you pretend like you have an office. They're like 20 bucks a month. Um, and you just add it to your address. Uh, but have that aside... I'm. I could see some scenarios where this goes horribly wrong, right? Um, what about that woman who was criticizing video game culture, and people were like going to her house and sending threats and things like that? I forgot her name. Oh right, yes, yes. Well, I was even just thinking like uh, maybe like an app that uh, accidentally, like a total bug, exposes some really. Well, let's just take secret. Right. Let's say let's say somehow everybody's identity on secret leaks and somebody who shared something particularly embarrassing and is a little unbalanced decides to go find out that developers where you know just this is just total example here but you know like you could see how it could lead to some bad some bad situations where somebody gets a vendetta and says that was my info or your app deleted all of my baby's pictures or you know uh, the nudies of my girlfriend you just leaked all of them whatever it is you can see how somebody get really upset and want to have a little bit of a vendetta to go uh, take care of I don't know it seems pretty risky to me what's the upside here I mean there must be a pretty valid reason for Google doing this uh, I get the feeling they want to keep trash out of the Google Play Store more and more. 
this does not seem the way to go. It says here, it says, it's mandatory to provide a physical address where you can be contacted as you are the seller of the content to comply with consumer protection laws. Right. Or so they can serve you a subpoena. That's probably really what it is, right? Or If you don't comply, it may result in your app being removed from the Google Play Store. I wonder if we're about to see a great purge of the Google Play Store of old apps and stuff like that. Maybe. How are they confirming these addresses, though? I don't know. I mean, I guess they just do a, they probably do a Google map lookup, and if it's a valid address, they just accept it. You could probably plug anything in, but then if they found you, if they found you were doing it intentionally, maybe there would be something there they could go for after you for. That's a really good question. I don't know. This is, this is pretty nuts. It seems like, uh, yeah, it seems like they're taking a, I don't know. I mean, I could see needing to serve notice on someone of a lawsuit or something like that. That's basically it. Well, it seems like this would be something Apple would do and not something Google would do. Like, it seems like this is bizarre world. Does it is, is – see, what I'm not totally clear on, is Google going to publicly make these addresses available? It's not, I can't imagine no. they are. So what they're going to do is they're, it's, it's going to be – so Apple makes you do this when you sign up for a developer's account, right? What's the difference? I think so. So what's the difference? I guess Google didn't do it before. I, to be honest, I'm pretty sure we have an address in the Google account anyway because we use them for Google Apps for Business, and it's all kind of connected. Because I'm reading through this, and I've seen people talking about this, but I've never seen that it's going to be published, published publicly. So uh, now, of course, something like this could leak or eventually could become public, but that to me is it makes a huge difference. Hmm. I don't know, though. I'm still not totally happy about it. Uh, no, I, it feels wrong, but actually it may just be one of those non-issue sort of things. It, it does, exactly. It, it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I'll tell you about something that's a great issue, and that's DigitalOcean, our next sponsor here on Coda Radio, DigitalOcean.com. Head over there right now, and don't forget, we've got a promo code. Wow, September is almost over. Jeez Louise, you should probably try to use this right now. I would. Coder September, lowercase. Give you a $10 credit over DigitalOcean. You can get the $5 rig for two months for absolutely free. Now, if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, you should check it out. Mike and I have been using it for a long time. Mike, for ages longer than I have, he uses it for some of the back-end infrastructure for his web apps, his consumer uh, mobile apps, and I use it for the back-end infrastructure for a lot of our publishing infrastructure and my media production for some of our shows, syncing files, own cloud, things like that, scheduling. It's an amazing resource. And if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, I'd like to tell you a little bit about them. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. You can create a cloud server in probably less than 55 seconds, and the pricing starts at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer connected to tier, ban- tier 1 bandwidth. DigitalOcean has great data centers all over the world in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. Brand new one in London, and it rocks with private networking and core OS and IPv6. It's nuts, and their interface is so simple. The control panel is amazing, and you could even replicate this awesome control panel on a much larger scale with your own straightforward access to their beautiful API. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they got an API. In fact, there's apps out for Mac and Ubuntu right now that just integrate management of your DigitalOcean droplet right into the menu bar. In fact, it's probably for other OSs as well. I don't know. Shoot. Shoot. So don't forget, when you go over to DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code CODERSEPTEMBER, that's all one word, lowercase, to get that $10 credit. Go spin up a DigitalOcean droplet. I've got a few myself. And you can try out their one-click application, install GoDeploy GitLab. Have your own GitLab now. 
Save yourself some money. You can put it on a DigitalOcean droplet, and you can use it for two months for free when you use the promo code CODERSEPTEMBER. Own cloud, email, whatever it might be, a VPN server, BitTorrent, Sync. It can do it all. WordPress. That's where Matt runs several of his WordPress installations is over on DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERSEPTEMBER. CODERSEPTEMBER when you check out to get that $10 credit. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. I'm just looking at, you know, at their dashboard right now, and it's, it really, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing that they've managed to put such an incredible UI on top of something that really was a big part of my business. And uh, I think this is such an awesome way to do it now. And that's why whenever I need any kind of infrastructure at all, it's just a no-brainer. I go to DigitalOcean, and the pricing plans make it even easier at Coder September when you check out. Okay, Mr. Dominic. So we talked a little bit about Google forcing addresses, and I'm not sure if it's a big deal or not. Uh, but it is—it's sort of a—it's it's a form of potentially exposing developers, uh, which is concerning. And it could be—and when I say exposing developers, I don't just mean to like this crazy scenario where somebody gets their information leaks and they go hunt down a developer, but probably more like what you're talking about—a much more realistic subpoena you know, or a, a copyright violation gets served to them and things like that. This is a big problem in the Google Play Store, and there's probably a lot of folks that want to take legal action against some of this crap that's in there, and Google's been unable to do that fully. So I suspect that's more what the Google Play address stuff is about. I have another form of doxing, though, that I wanted to talk to you about that I, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence because there's a couple of different ways you could look at this. So you probably caught that iOS... 8.0.1 shipped, and it caused service issues for iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, right? Yeah, and- yeah. and let me, let me tell you, uh, the minute I read that, I called my wife, because she has an iPhone 6, gold, of course, very popular with the ladies, <laughs> and said, for the love of God, do not update your phone. And she says, why? I said, because I don't want to deal with you after you upgrade it and it breaks. Right. Yeah. And then she Googled it, because that's how she is, and she's like, this is just like Apple. Remember, former Microsoft person? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. They, they, uh, and, and I'm still waiting, by the way. I, this, since it is a new version of iOS 8, I, we, are, it, it, we are now due for a uh, lock screen bypass vulnerability uh, for the new iOS update. That also seems – so they got to bork – they always have to bork the Wi-Fi once, and they got to bork the lock screen thing once. And so we're on track. We got the Wi-Fi. Now it's time for the lock screen. Uh, so here's where I'm getting at with this, though. In wake of the issues around iOS 8.01 and all the problems, I don't know if you caught this. But headlines started popping up on popular Mac news site, outing the person at Apple responsible for the QA process that led to that flaw shipping and linking that same person to the QA oversight of Apple Maps, uh, including her name, where she is in the org chart at Apple, um, and uh, how many people work for her, and the sort of structure that led to this problem. And I want to ask you, do you think uh, this is a dangerous precedent? To actually out in this case, it was a QA lead, yeah. not a developer, but a QA lead. But this could easily have happened to a developer, not QA. Is it? Is it? Is this a dangerous precedent to out the name, first and last name, of this QA lead that led to a buggy release? A buggy release that did genuinely affect a lot of people who bought a very expensive device. So and and has also led to other bugs. So in some way, one angle could be. Apple has a corporate responsibility, and now outing this person puts pressure on them to fix the problem. The other flip side is we don't know what circumstances and restrictions this person's working under, and I'm not sure it's appropriate that we now all know her first and last name. No, I, I don't think this is appropriate at all. Um, you know, one individual cannot be responsible for the entire company, right, unless their name is Tim Cook. <laughs> or Johnny Ive. 
Or Johnny Hive, yeah. <laughs> so I this is this is kind of crazy. This is like it's like saying you had a problem with Campbell's soup and, and going after someone who was doing quality control at Campbell's. Like to me this is just crazy. This is absurd and this lady I mean, maybe she's bad at her job, right? Is this but that's kinda that's kind of up to Apple to decide. Is this the dark side of fanboyism where fanboys are, so. are, are grappling to find out how can I how do I fit the fact that Apple just shipped a majorly flawed update into my paradigm that Apple is all about quality? Oh I know. I'll blame it on the one single person. Maybe, is right. That, it's just is, one individual who who's not really meant to be at Apple, right? Right, yeah, that's the person. It's, so that's that's the logical. It's not Apple's there. fault as a whole. It's this one bad seed that's in the apple. And if they just pulled that out, everything would just be fine. Right, like it was a bad hire, basically. So that leads to this want from the Mac because it's really where this story was only really at was on the Mac presses, uh, the Mac news sites. So it leads to them to publish this to sort of say, look, look, we found we found the we found the reason why Apple had a flaw. Yeah, I. You know, day one updates are pretty rough, right? I mean, is it just me who still shies away at the day one update? Yeah, can we get to that, by the way? Like, can we get to the fact that common sense just says wait a couple of weeks after a major new OS update before you upgrade? Like, if it's a production phone that you need to do your gerb, maybe you should wait, oh, I don't know, a week. Like Windows Threshold or Windows 9 is going to be announced in a couple weeks or something coming out soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, would you upgrade your Windows PC on day one? Of course not. Of course not. Right. And and this is but in mobile, it's got to get that new shiny man as soon as and I, I do it too, man. I updated, I updated before it was even out. I updated as soon as it went gold. And on my oh, uh, I, and I'm running L on my Nexus Five. I'm running L. It's not even out yet. What's the matter? I with mean, me? I have the I had the beta for the longest time, but I didn't. You know, it, it's a special case, right? I also when feel like my... I'm going into it knowing that I'm rolling with some risk. Versus right. people who are apparently doing these updates and then outrage that there's a problem. I agree it shouldn't happen, but uh, the last 30 years of the computer industry would kind of suggest it always freaking happens. Like, always. It's almost a law. It should almost be a law that there's a flaw after a, mag- a major OS update and that it's worth waiting even just two weeks. You know, and I, I – by the way – I apply that also to new hardware in most cases. You don't have to buy the phone the day it came out. Like, right. wait a couple of weeks, and maybe people will find out that it bends, and then maybe Apple will decide to reinforce the little piece of metal by the volume thingy, and then future models don't quite bend as much. Like, sometimes there's a lot of good reasons to just wait even a few weeks before you buy a phone. But no, we're this culture now of got to buy it, got to stand in line, got to have a day of, got to update the OS immediately, then I got to go on Twitter, and I got to talk like a big shot, big shot whenever I find a flaw, whenever there's a bug now i'm a big shot developer and i can tell everybody about it drives me crazy you know a lot of it though it does feel like miss like unfulfilled faith in a way right like they truly particularly apple fans in their heart they believe in apple in a way that most people believe about religion i mean in all honesty right so when something is shown to them that i don't know shakes that faith they they do respond badly we're gonna get a lot of hate mail no it's true though and i think you could say the same uh, actually wow so 
in the Linux Action Show subreddit right now, there's like two or three threads about what a bad human being I am because I said a couple of bad things about Ubuntu, about how right. I am unbiased, I'm or I'm very biased, I'm an arch fanboy, etc., etc. And and what, some of the things that they're using to draw this conclusion is that. I read a blog post from one of our Linux Action Show producers, and in that blog post, he talked about how each desktop environment under Linux is handling multi-touch. I was doing an overall news piece on the new version of GNOME that shipped last week, and in there, I talked about GNOME's support for multi-touch in Eric's blog post. Because, now, according to them, I skipped over the Unity piece that shows how I am an Ubuntu hater, and I obviously ignore all the advancements of Unity, and therefore am unsuited to cover the news, to cover the Linux news, because I skipped the Unity section, even though I was doing a news piece on GNOME. My point is, what they do is they look for something that... That they and they they grab onto it and they and they run with it and it's it just it's just well, you, a self, you, form of self validation. You are a notorious Fedora fanboy, though. Right? Um, yes, of course. Well, that was the ironic thing is they're saying, "Oh, Chris is so biased. He only talks about Arch." And then we had like a twenty-five minute interview with the Fedora project leader in that same episode. I mean, it's like give me a break. But see, people when they see something that validates an existing belief structure, they just glom onto it. And so with right. this Apple stuff, it's that same exact thing and and it has the reverse effect. So when Apple fails, there is this way overreaction. And it is I I want to shake these people and say, "Could you have any more first world syndrome right now?" I mean, yes, bugs happen, but we also as consumers have the ability not to update immediately. Which I suppose that form sounds like a form of justification, but it's really just being practical. Well, it's not justification. The bug happened, right? And you should, you know, writing a letter of complaint to Apple, I think, is reasonable. Things like that. But hating on the individual person and you know doxing them and this kind of thing just sounds a little—it's over the top. Little mutt. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, if we said something that just is outrageous to you, we'd like to hear your feedback. We welcome that. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link. It could also be something that wasn't so outrageous or something you wanted to get our thoughts on, pick our brains about. Any topic suggestions, those can go to coderadio.reddit.com. Also another great place for feedback. Mr. Dominic, is there anything else we wanted to uh, chew on today? Nope. Happy October. Wow. Soon. Yeah. Well, our next episode, it'll be six days into October. I know, it'll be great. Oh my gosh, that is crazy. That is crazy. You know, I'm going to be leaving. I'll be out of town, I don't know, towards the end of October, but I don't know if it's actually going to affect the production of the show at all. No. I don't think it will. Don't leave. I'll be gone for a few days. Just only a few days, Mr. Dominic, down at Ohio Linux Fest. You know. All right, well, enjoy the Linuxy fun. And welcome back from your trip. Is there uh, anywhere you want to send folks throughout the week to check up on you? Just go to... At Jumanuku on Twitter. Sure, sure. It's almost like you don't say that every week. It's almost like you have to think about it. <laughs> it's weird. I do. I know. It's weird, right? Like, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter, too. Did you know that? I just signed up at Chris LES, brand new account. Just created it yeah, 30 seconds ago. You don't believe me? Go check it out and then follow me. Find out if I'm lying or not. At Chris LES. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of Coda Radio. Love to have you join us live Mondays, noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, jblive.tv. See you right back here next week. <laughs>